If you have a Bible, if you turn to Luke 22, we're going to have a message, the meaning of the bread and cup, since we're doing that today. And beginning in verse 1, Luke 22, 1, it says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. And then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being the number of the twelve. And he went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him unto them. And they were glad and covenanted to give him money. And he promised and sought opportunity to betray him unto them in the absence of the multitude. And then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare us the Passover that we may eat. And they said unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare? And he said unto them, Behold, when you are entered into the city, there shall a man meet you bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house where he enters in. And you shall say unto the good man of the house, The master saith unto thee, Where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished, and there make ready. And they went and found as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. And when the hour was come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And he said unto them, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread and gave thanks and break it and gave it unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. And likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined. But woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. And we'll stop there. So, I want to begin by saying you know, our memories are a blessing from God. What I mean by memories is our ability to remember. Because people that can't remember anymore, people when they get older, they get frustrated and it can hinder you from enjoying the present. So there's many things though, don't you know, this happens to me all the time. Things you forget about and then out of the blue all of a sudden you remember them again. And you're like, oh yeah, I completely forgot about that. That happens all the time to us, doesn't it? And that's why we have photo albums, because you can go back and look and remember all the things you forgot. Man, I forgot what they looked like when they were that age. Or forgot we did this or went there, and that's what you do. And so God knows that forgetting is things that humans tend to do for a lot of different reasons. And so what he does is he gives us aids for our memory, aids that remind us of things that God has done for us, his people, how he was faithful in the past, and we can rely on that to know that he will be faithful in the future. So when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And so what's he telling him when he appears to him then? He's saying, I am. I am the God of your father. And he names them. And that's reminding Moses of all the faithfulness that God has shown the patriarchs in the past, and that he'll do that in the future. And so Moses assembles all the elders of the children of Israel, and this is the word he gives them from the Lord. He says, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt, and I have promised to bring you up 
out of your misery in Egypt unto the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. He says, I'm going to bring you into a land flowing with milk and honey. So he tells all of Israel through the elders, he says, God said to me, I am the God of your fathers. I was faithful to them in the past, and I had given them a promise that you would go into that land, but I'll bring you back out of there, and I am going to be faithful to that. You can trust that. So what's Israel being called to remember? They're being called to remember that God is a promise-keeping God. They're called to remember who he is, the great I am, what he has done. He's been faithful to their forefathers and what he promises to do for them in the future. If they'll just trust his word, trust to do what he has promised that he would do, just like he did to their fathers before them. And so God, there he didn't give them any kind of sign or memorial, but he repeatedly did in the Old Testament signs and memorials to help them remember and bolster their faith. For instance, in Joshua 4, Israel had crossed over the Jordan River, and the Jordan, the land in, in the river there is still dry. And Joshua tells them, he goes, I want each of you to take one man, had to be a burly guy, I would think, from each of your tribes, go back in that river and get a stone, put it on your shoulder and carry it out. And then when they came, it says, and camped at Gilgal, they erected a monument. The stones were set up as a memorial and a sign. And here's what Joshua told Israel. He said, when your children, so they're going to ask, that monument is going to stand there for years, hundreds of years, if not thousands. And he says, when your children shall ask their fathers in time to come down the road and saying, what means these stones? What's this all about? What's all that all about? He says, then you shall let your children know, saying, Israel came over this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of Jordan from before you until you were passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up from before us until we were going over. And why did he do that? Why is this memorial set here? What is he going to tell their children? The reason, he says, that all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty. That's a memorial there. Whenever they see that, that's going to tell Israel and the people of the earth how mighty God was. It's a memorial to what he did. But not only that, he says also that you might fear the Lord your God forever. So what were those stones stacked up to be? A sign. So when you have a sign, Chicago this way, it's pointing somewhere. And this is a sign, this memorial is a sign pointing back to his power and faithfulness that brought Israel not only through the Red Sea, but also across the Jordan on dry land. And he says, therefore, future generations can be instructed to fear the Lord and know that, hey, because of this right here, what we know God has done for us, and he didn't just do it for one tribe or one person, he did it, it was representative of all the tribes. So no matter what tribe you're from, you know that I should fear God because of his power, but I also, because of that power, know that I can trust his deliverance and his faithfulness for generations to come. So they walk past that and see that, and that is a reminder to them. And praise God, he's given them that reminder. That's what I would be thinking if I was a Jew walking past that memorial. In 1 Samuel 7, we have another case. Samuel begins to judge Israel. The Philistines, through Eli, they were backslidden, came into Israel. Israel's backslidden. The Philistines come in, they wipe them out. They take the ark away. Well, God judges them for that, and they finally say, hey, we're going to send the ark back to Israel. But nonetheless, they still are oppressing Israel. They've moved into their cities. 
And so Samuel comes to them and he tells the people, he says, if you will return to the Lord, put away your false gods and prepare your hearts and serve the Lord only, he says, he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. And listen, that's a principle for any trial that we're in, isn't it? God speaks to you and says, you got stuff you're doing that's not right. That's why you got this trouble going on. And he says, if you'll just repent, put away your false God, whatever you're putting before me, and come back and serve me, God says, I'll deliver you, period. It's just a principle there. But he told them that. And guess what? The people did exactly what Samuel said. They put away their false gods. They fasted. They prayed. They got before the Lord. And the Philistines come and arrayed a battle. And Israel, supernaturally by the hand of God, wiped them out. A great victory. And so as a result of that, it says that Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen and called the name of it Ebenezer. We've heard about that before, haven't we? Saying, thus far has the Lord helped us. And so right there again, there's another place to where you're walking along the road there going down towards Mizbah. Here's this huge stone. And you're going to look at that and you're going to think, man, we were in a bad way, a real bad way. But when we repented, sought the Lord, determined to serve him only right here, we have a monument that our God didn't forsake us. He came and he helped us. And Israel, even during that time, they had war with the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Went on through with Saul and David. But they could look at that and see all the days of Samuel. It said Israel, though, they prevailed over the Philistines. So as these wars going on, they can go past that and say, we will continue to prevail because God has helped us thus far. He's helped us here. He helped us then. And he'll help us in the future. That's what those memorials are pointing to. But the greatest memorial of the Old Testament that God used to visibly help the Israelites remember his power and deliverance is what? It's the Passover, the feast of the Passover. So we know the story. Egypt has severely oppressed Israel with hard labor. And God says, I'm going to send 10 plagues on them and they will set you free. Finally, they'll want to. So the last plague, he sent the death angel to kill every firstborn in the land of Egypt. And that included all the firstborn animals. Didn't leave anybody out. And so he instructed Israel, though, Moses said, you take a lamb, a spotless lamb that is a year old, and you slit its throat, you kill it. And the blood of that lamb then, you're supposed to take it and apply it with a bunch of hyssop to the lintel, the two sides and above, but don't put any on the floor because you're not going to walk on that blood. And he said, when I see that blood, I will pass over you. And I will not allow that destroyer to come into your houses. And what were they supposed to do? He says, you're going to eat that sacrificed lamb. None of it is going to be wasted. Make sure you got enough people there to eat it. You're going to have unleavened bread with bitter herbs and you need to stay in your house. So they had some things they had to do to obey. And that night, the death angel went through Egypt. And it says in the Bible that there was a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt. And it says this, there was not a house where there was not one dead. From Pharaoh, it says, down to the lowest slave, down to the animals. There was not a place where one was not dead. All the firstborn died, except where? Where the blood was, the protection of the blood. And Pharaoh calls for Moses and told him, he says, rise up and get out of here from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel, and go, he says, worship the Lord as you have said, 
Also take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, is what he said. And also, if you don't mind, can you bless me? That's what he said on your way out. But God granted them what? A mighty deliverance. And you would think, how could you ever forget that? Well, how could anyone ever forget 9-11? But guess what? It's starting to be forgotten, as bad as that was. And that's just the way things there are. And God says, I'm not letting you, Israel. This is a monumental time and night and my power being demonstrated. I'm not going to let you forget that forever. So if you would turn back to Exodus chapter 12. So we're saying God gives us memorials, aids, things to help us remember. Exodus chapter 12 and verse 13. And it says, and the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And God says, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. It's a great hymn. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. But look at verse 14. And this day shall be unto you for a what? Memorial or a sign. And you shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it a feast by ordinance forever. So once a year, for 1,500 years it was supposed to go on. They didn't always celebrate it like they should have. But for once a year, every Jew was to relive the experience of the first Passover. So most of them, obviously, after a while, most of them were never there on that night. But they are there, in a sense, through that Passover observance. And it became a part of their memory as a nation. It became part of their national identity. I've worked in people's houses. They aren't religious. They're atheists. And they still, they go through this Passover celebration. It's a part of them and their culture and their people. It's a part of their identity. I was not doing any good, but nonetheless. And so what would happen is the fathers, this memorial set up, and they would interpret what's going on to their kids. So look in the next chapter over, chapter 13. And look what it says beginning in verse 3. It says, And Moses said unto the people, Remember, remember, that's the word. That's the word. Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by the strength of the hand the Lord brought you out from this place, and there shall be no leavened bread be eaten. And this day came you out in the month Abib, and it shall be when the Lord shall bring thee into the land of the Canaanites. So this is going to be later, isn't it? And the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore unto thy fathers to give thee a land flowing with milk and honey. He says, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days shall you eat unleavened bread, and in the seventh day shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days, and there shall no leavened bread be seen with thee, neither shall there be leaven seen with thee in all thy quarters. And thou shalt show thy son in that day. So it's going to get passed on, saying, This is done because of that which the Lord did unto me when I came forth out of Egypt. And it shall be for a sign unto thee upon thy hand, and for a memorial between thine eyes, that the Lord's law may be in thy mouth. For with a strong hand has the Lord brought thee out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this ordinance in his season. How often? From year to year. So they have to explain it to the children. They're like, why are we doing this, Dad? Why do we do this Passover? What's this lamb all about? And they would have to explain it every time. Verse 8, you shall show to thy son in that day, saying, we do this because of that which the Lord did unto me when I came forth out of Egypt. 
And that pattern of observing the Passover and explaining it to the children went on, because otherwise it wouldn't have made any sense. And it's repeated a few verses later, if you look down in verse 12, and it says, you shall set apart, this is another part of the observance, unto the Lord all that opens the matrix and every firstling that comes of a beast which thou hast, the male shall be the Lord's, and every firstling of an ass thou shalt redeem with a lamb. And if thou wilt not redeem it, then thou shalt break his neck, and all the firstborn of man among thy children shalt thou redeem. And it shall be when thy son asks you, so he's going to ask in time to come, say, what are you doing, Dad? Why are you doing that? Why are you killing the best of our flocks? What are you doing that for? He says, you will say unto him, by strength of hand, the Lord brought us out from Egypt, from the house of bondage. And it came to pass when Pharaoh would hardly let us go, that the Lord slew all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. And that's why he's saying, therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all that opens the matrix being males, but all the firstborn of my children I redeem, and it shall be for a token upon thine hand and for a frontlet between thine eyes, for by strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. So he's saying, we kill the firstborn of all of our cattle and the horses and whatever else and the sheep. It's a visible reminder that their lives were spared from Egypt, and it was costly. It cost. So they're in the land of Canaan. This is why we're here, he's telling them, and this is why we're not still slaves in the land of Egypt, because a price was paid by the firstborn, an innocent life. That lamb, a year old, had to be violently taken, and its blood shed. They're explaining that to these children. So they're saying... The Passover, it became a remembrance, a visual reminder of God's faithfulness and Israel's identity. So here we see, and we could go on, the Bible has a pattern of giving aids, memorials, or signs, whatever you want to call them, that point back to past events in history. So we talked about the feast, the Ebenezer Stone, the memorial at Gilgal. And so those past events, though, they're not just left in the past. They're not just to be observed as, as historical events, just bare facts like we do in history class reading about Abraham Lincoln. He doesn't affect me. His assassination doesn't affect me. Right. But these people, he's saying this all happened to them back there. You need to know this because it's going to affect you now and in the future. That's what he's telling them. So. They ask, why are these 12 stones packed on one another, stacked up here? He says, because of what the Lord has done for us. Not for those people in the past, though. No, it's for us is what he's done. And for us, he'll continue to do things in the future. Why do we keep this feast every year? It's because of the mighty deliverance that God has given us, for us, what he did in Egypt. And so what he's done for us in the past, we're his people United in that way, we can trust him in the future. He'll be faithful in the future. And that's what we have here in the communion cup. Said a lot of that to get to here. That's what we have going on here. If you turn back to Luke 22, it's what the communion cup is all about. It's a remembrance. Look in verse 19, Luke 22, 19. And it says, And Jesus took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave unto them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. So we remember his death and its present effects, the knowledge of how it affects us in our present day. And we're going to see in the future. So Paul says in Galatians 2, 
He says, I live by the faith of the Son of God. He wasn't there. Paul wasn't there when the crucifixion took place, was he? He wasn't there. Who loved me. I live by faith in the Son of God. I trust in him who loved me and gave himself, he says, what? For me. And we can say the same things. We weren't there. It happened 2,000 years ago over that. But we can still say he loved me and gave himself for me. It's got an ongoing effect. It was finished, but it wasn't finished as far as its ongoing effect. It's affecting the whole world still. So just as the Passover was the central and defining event in Israel's life as a nation, so is our communion, the bread and cup. It's the central and defining event in the church. You know, we do it once a month. I believe the early church, they did it every week on the first day of the week. There's a lot of churches that do it every week. A lot of places will say, well, there's a lot of things they say becomes a ritual. Well, we still pray. We still sing. We still hear the word. We do a lot of things that could become a ritual. And I know people that they do it every week and people leave and they go somewhere else where it's once a month like us. Or some places it's once every three months, some places once a year. And they say, we miss the fact that it's not done. But that right there, that's the central feature, isn't it? That's what it's all about. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. His blood being shed. Visibly reminded. What does that tell us? Visibly we're being told we were bought with a price. And when we all partake, we're all part of the covenant community. And also it points to, it's a foretaste of a great feast that's coming. Did you know that? You're right there in Luke. Look what it says beginning in verse 15. Look what he says. And he said to them with desire, I've desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until, until, he's saying there's a future. It will be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine. Never again does he say that until when the kingdom of God shall come. It's like we're, we're partaking of an appetizer, if you want to put it that way. Because there's a great feast coming, and we'll talk about that towards the end of the message. So communion, it has a past, present, and a future element to it, doesn't it? But the main thing that I want to look at today to begin with is that the bread and wine do what? What do they mainly do? They're mainly pointing to the sacrificial death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 19, and he took bread, it says, and gave thanks, break it. Gave it unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you, that do this in remembrance of me. So Jesus, in saying, and here's the problem that we've had. <laughs> he seems to be equating the bread that he hands to his disciples with his body. He hands them the bread saying, This is my body. And so just like Bill Clinton, the Catholics have had trouble to figuring out what is means in that case. You know, Matthew and Mark, in their account, it says, Take, eat, this is my body. And so... Is, is he saying it is literally his body? I mean, if you're one of the 12 disciples, I kind of don't think you'd be thinking that when there he is all physically whole, handing you a piece of bread. Are they going to think that's his body? I don't think so. I think that's how they would have thought it because Jesus also said he was a door and I don't think he had hinges. He said he was a vine. He said he was water. And he also said here is in here. He is the bread of life. And so what do we call that when you say you are something and it's different than the reality? It's called a metaphor. That's all he's doing is giving some metaphors. So if you would turn to John 6. 
Look in verses 32 to 35. He says, Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives his life unto the world. And they said unto him, Well, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger, and he that believes on me shall never thirst. And so he tells you right there, how do you eat his flesh? Eat the bread. How do you do that? It tells you right there in verse 35. What do you do? He says you come to him and you believe in him. That's how we eat his flesh and drink his blood. Look, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me. Well, then never hunger when you come. He that believes on me, then he's saying you'll never thirst. And look down in verse 47 and what it says. He says, truly, truly, I say unto you, he that believes on me has everlasting life. And then I am the bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. And he says, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. All he's simply saying is we need bread to live. And the Israelites knew that, didn't they? They get out in the wilderness and they're like, where are we going to get anything to eat out here? I've been in that wilderness. There's nothing growing. And they're longing for the onions and leeks that were in Egypt. And Jesus said, look, God provided for your physical needs. That's what he's telling them there in verse 49. He says, your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness. He provided for that. He goes, but what you need to remember is your fathers ate that manna that God provided and they're no longer around because they're dead. Manna wasn't the eternal bread, was it? It perished. It had to be renewed every single day. You got to think about this. So when you're hungry, what is the natural thing to do when you're starving? It's to eat. You want to eat. Somebody holds you out a piece of bread when you're starving and you take and eat. Isn't that what he said? That's what he said in Matthew. This is my body. Take, eat. This is my body. We have an infinitely greater need than to satisfy our physical hunger, don't we? Because what do we need? What does mankind need? What do these people around the world need? Forgiveness, salvation, redemption, life from God. Isn't that what we really need? And Jesus is saying, there is a bread that will satisfy that need. And he's saying, it's my flesh, my sacrifice on the cross, that body that is soon to be broken in sacrificial death. He's saying, that's what you need. That's what will meet your real hunger that you have. And so it should be as natural to take that bread and eat it because of our need as it would be when you're physically hungry to eat physical bread. Amen? So when he says take and eat, it's simply saying we need to reach out and receive what he's offering us himself. And that's what he's saying. Look in verses 55 to 57. He says, for my flesh is food or meat indeed. My blood, he says, is drink indeed. He that eats my flesh and drinks my blood dwells in me and I in him. And as the living father has sent me and I live by the father, so he that eats me, even he shall live by me. 
And that's just a picture. Jesus isn't eating the Father, is He? But He's saying He lives by Him. And so He's saying, you eat me, you will live by me. He's not saying we need to physically eat His flesh. That's not what He's talking about. He's talking about spiritually feasting on Him. And how do we do that? Through the Holy Spirit and the words of life. The gospel, in a spiritual sense, through the Spirit and the Word, we feast on Christ. That's what we do every week. Amen? That's what he's telling them here in verse 63. He says, it's the Spirit that makes you alive. He says, the flesh, my flesh, my physical flesh, the bread we're going to eat today. That's just bread. He's saying, that doesn't profit you anything. He's saying, it's the words that I speak to you. He says, they are spirit and they are life. That's what we're feasting on. Amen? So the communion visibly points to the gospel of salvation. You know how that is? There's nothing we can do for our salvation, is there? And so the Lord comes to them and he hands out his life, his bread. It represents that. And he says, take and eat. You can't do anything to earn that, can you? You just take and you receive what he gives you and eat. And that's how life comes. We have to, with a humble heart, receive that. And that's what he's offering to us. Take, eat. This is my body. So back in Luke 22:20, 20, so that talks about the body, the bread. We talked about that in verse 22:20. 20, it says, likewise, also the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. And Matthew says, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. And Matthew adds, for the remission or the forgiveness of sins. And so that blood was shed to give us forgiveness of sins, which that is the ground of the new covenant. Talks about both of them together. And so how many times do we need to drink of the cup of forgiveness to drink that blood? I'd say on a daily basis. And so you think about it. I'm, I'm telling you, I know the way it is. We just go through the motions when we do communion too many times, and we're not really thinking about what we're doing, do we? We're just thinking, here's what we do. He stands up there and says those words, and everybody gets up. We may or may not sing a song when we go home. And that's the end of it. But when you receive that cup, you're receiving the cleansing blood. You're acknowledging, I've received the cleansing blood of the Lord Jesus. And God has given us a tangible sign. Think of that when you're partaking of it today, that we are clean. It's as if the Lord Jesus Christ hands you that cup and says, here, take this, drink from it. He goes on to say in Luke, he says, drink from it, all of you, all of you drink from it and know as you're drinking that this wine, we have grape juice, wine, whatever, represents my blood, which has been poured out for you and has given you the forgiveness of your sins. And you personally, you're drinking that wine. You are a partaker of that. Not somebody else. You are. You are clean. We need to see that. Completely cleansed, if you'll trust me for that. And so someone in here, they're like, man, I've got this past sin or maybe something you did this morning that you think, man, I don't know if I can be forgiven of that. When you drink that blood, you have to see that is God's pledge to you. You are forgiven if you've repented. Now, nobody's forgiven for unrepentant sin. The Bible doesn't teach that, and we're not saying that today. But he says you have to receive that forgiveness by faith, and it's a visible sign that points to that. Just like that bread points to the visible sign of his broken body on the cross that we receive by faith. 
Because he says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's just this visibly shows us that. It's what it's all about. And the second thing, the communion, we talked about that it represents the sacrificial death of our Lord. The second thing it represents is the new covenant. And we've already read it about a dozen times, but verse 20, it says, this cup is the new, my King James says, testament, really it's covenant. This is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. And so Jesus's blood, when that blood was shed on the cross, when he died, it began a new covenant. It sealed it. And so what's he doing here now? He's celebrating the Passover with his disciples. And what was the Passover part of? It was part of the old covenant. And this is the last, when he's celebrating this Passover meal with his disciples, it is the last official Passover meal that was sanctioned by God. Because no more after that, it was all changed. No longer the Passover meal, it became communion or the Lord's Supper, some places call it. Because the Hebrews, the book of Hebrews tells us that that old covenant is decayed and vanished away. And so Jesus has taken the Passover meal this night and he's changing it or fulfilling it, however you want to look at it. And listen, that was no small thing. So we're so used to hearing on the night he was betrayed, it's a Passover meal. Nobody in their right mind, unless you were Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would stand there and take this Passover meal that had been done for 1,500 years. The bread represents that unleavened bread, their quick departure out of Egypt, the bread of affliction, the worldliness, we're done with it. And she's saying, no, it doesn't represent that anymore. The disciples had to be like, huh? He's saying, no, this is my body now from here on out. And the blood, the blood doesn't ever no longer represent a sheep, a lamb in Egypt. He said, no, this blood represents my blood, the blood of the Son of God, the precious blood priceless. He's saying, this is what this cup now represents. No longer what it used to. I mean, that is a major change for these Jewish people to have to accept Jewish Christians. Like I said, I grew up thinking the other way. I never celebrated a Passover growing up. But you think about the change the Lord Jesus Christ is making there. No small thing. And listen, all of the covenants, we're saying his blood established a covenant Every one of the covenants that God established with his people or with man required what? Blood. The covenant with Noah was sealed in blood. He had to sacrifice when he got off that ark. And that covenant with the rainbow, it was was a covenant of blood. The covenant with Abraham, he had to slay those animals and walk between them. Blood was always involved. That's the only way man could be reconciled to God was through blood. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so it wasn't just death. You couldn't take a club and go up and smash a lamb's head and club it to death. Uh, That wasn't going to work. There had to be this graphic display of blood. You can get on YouTube. I've done it. And you can watch. I've seen them over in the Middle East. They still, you can see them slit that lamb's throat and watch them. Some of them just let it go to the ground. Others of them, I'm saying, they'll catch it in a little bucket or whatever. It's an incredible sight to see. A painful way to die. It was. But what is God showing? That life has been poured out in a graphic way. Leviticus 17, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And he says, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes an atonement for the soul. No other way 
is what God has done. And so he established the old covenant. When God established the old covenant with Israel, Exodus 24, Moses, he had these young men. It says he had these young men go slay oxen. And he said, you collect the blood. Man, imagine how much that would have been. And it said he put half of it in basins or bowls. He said he took the other half and he sprinkled it upon the altar. And you know what he did the ones that were in the basins of the bowls? It'd be like he set one here and dipped down in it and just started throwing it on everybody out there. Y'all got blood on you. Then he moved to the next. He's throwing it all over the congregation, saying that blood is sprinkled on the congregation. And it was after they had told the Lord, we will keep covenant with you. Moses read the law of the covenant, and they said, everything that's in there will be obedient, and we will do. He says, all right. I'm going to take the blood then from this, and this is what's going to seal this covenant between you and God, which they couldn't keep. But that's the way it was done. The wording is the same. So here's what the wording is in Exodus 24, 8. It says, Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you concerning all these words. And what does Jesus say in Luke 22:20? 20? Likewise, also the cup after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. What we need to see is that blood that was shed has brought about our forgiveness, which is the basis for a new covenant with God. And so just like that blood was sprinkled on Israel in a graphic way, in a real way, they could feel it hitting them. But the Bible in the New Testament in Hebrews, it says we have been sprinkled with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says our hearts have been sprinkled from an evil conscience in the book of Hebrews chapter 10. And so Jesus is the final sacrifice, isn't he? You know, the Catholics teach he's he's sacrificed in an unbloody manner every time it's offered. No, that's not the case. Once and for all, that blood was shed. And he's brought us into new covenant with God. This cup is a new covenant in my blood. So when we partake of the communion, it's not only teaching us of forgiveness of sins, but it's saying that blood that we're drinking, so to speak, is pointing to this covenant relationship that we're in with God now and that we have all of the benefits. That's what you need to be thinking about as you partake of that cup. This is telling me, God is telling me, he's speaking to me. You have all the benefits of my covenant, of the new covenant. And what are they? Well, Hebrews 8, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36 tell us we're cleansed from sin once and for all. We have God's law written on our hearts. God says, I will give you a new heart. Another benefit of this new covenant, this blood that was shed that we wouldn't have otherwise. He's saying, I will let my spirit indwell in you. And also part of that covenant is we have the promise of God, the father dwelling in us and with us. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. Think about that when you're drinking the little cup. Because that's what it's telling you. God's giving you a visible sign. You're holding that cup. You're his. You've got his spirit in you. I've given you a new heart. That's what he's doing. It's a visible, tangible sign for each one of us. And look, when we look at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we look at what it says about that in Isaiah 53, what we have written right there, it's the foundation, isn't it? The cross, Isaiah 53 of the new covenant. And surely... It says the new covenant is built on better promises. And the old covenant promised healing everywhere, didn't it? 
And so how do we not, when we partake of this, know that we have God's pledge and promise for healing? Surely, it says. Surely. That's what the cross is telling us. Not maybe. It's saying surely he has borne our pains and carried away our sicknesses or diseases. Surely. That cup we're drinking is God's pledge of that. I've never had it happen myself necessarily, but I've heard of people in times past having their healing manifested during a communion service. And why wouldn't he do that? Why wouldn't God do that? Why should we think that's odd when we're feeding on Christ, drinking his blood, recognizing this covenant that we're under? Why would he not manifest himself in that way? Bless the Lord, O my soul. Just excuse me for a minute while I read this. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all thine iniquities. There it is. Think of that. Forgives all thine iniquities and heals all thy diseases, who redeems thy life from destruction, who crowns thee with loving kindness and tender mercy, who satisfies thy mouth with good things so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. That's what that's telling us right there, all of that. God loves us. He's given us a visible sign. He ordained it. <laughs> so listen, I don't believe there's anything special about the juice. I keep calling it wine. Well, just for your own information, that wine would usually be cut or diluted three or four times because they weren't supposed to be getting drunk. What we have going on in 1 Corinthians 11 was not typical is what would happen. But I don't believe the Lord's present in those elements. I don't believe he's there in any sense of that word. So we don't believe in transubstantiation like the Catholics, consubstantiation, that's the Lutherans where he's under it, which I haven't quite figured out myself exactly what they mean by that. But I'll tell you what I do believe. I believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is right here in our midst as we're gathered together. Do you all believe that? I hope you do. And I think he's here in a special way. Whenever we gather, in a, in a sense you could say then, that we hand out the elements, but it's just in a sense he, if you can understand what I'm saying, he's serving us the bread and the wine. He's here. He's the one doing that. He's present in our midst. If we come to the communion table, I think with a true heart, I believe we can expect his presence to be manifested in a tangible way to us. And so we're in Luke 22. If you turn over to Luke 24. So Luke 24 is the familiar story we've talked about in the past some about the two disciples. They're walking on the road to Emmaus and the risen Lord Jesus Christ comes up and walks with them. And as they're walking, they're telling him about all the events that surrounded his crucifixion. They're like, man, you're from Jerusalem and you don't know what happened. Everybody's talking about it. And so he walks with them and talks with them and they think he's still a stranger. And then at one point, Jesus gets on them. He chides them for their unbelief. And let's pick it up there in verse 25. And he said unto them, these two disciples, O oh, fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And it says, in beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them, interpreted unto them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And they drew nigh unto the village whither they went, and he made as though he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. 
Verse 30, it came to pass as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and break and gave it to them. And look at verse 31, and their eyes were opened and they knew him and he vanished out of their sight. And they said one to another, didn't our hearts burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose up the same hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the 11 gathered together and them that were with them saying, the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told the things that were done in the way. And look what it says at the end of verse 35. And how he was known of them in breaking of bread. And you look at verse 30. It says, and it came to pass as he sat at meat with them. The next verbs are everything that are in Luke 22:19 at the Last Supper. It says, he took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to them. It's exactly what happened at the communion when he did that during the Passover with his disciples, the exact same words. And look what it says here. But when he did that, their eyes were opened, it says, and they knew him. So let me ask you a question. Do you think it's possible the Lord Jesus Christ is present here? And if we had repentant, humble, faithful hearts expecting him to manifest himself, instead of just like, oh, well, we go through the motions, it's just a ritual we do, but to where it's an experience that God could maybe not give us a clearer view of himself and his atonement. He opened their eyes up here. Isn't that the prayer that we've prayed over in Ephesians? God may grant you wisdom and understanding that the eyes of your heart being enlightened. Wouldn't this be a time you could expect him to do that? A clearer view of our full acceptance. You're struggling with that. And maybe by faith you take those elements. There's nothing special about them. There's no grace in those elements. But that Jesus here, in being obedient to what he's doing, couldn't open your understanding to your adoption into his family, something maybe you're struggling with, his full redemption, his healing. Your eyes and your understanding could be open to see all that in a clearer way. I think so. I think that's what happened to these guys. Did God use the bread and cup to speak to us? I think it does. So we receive that bread and wine when you receive it. In a sense, God is telling us as you participate, as you receive those elements, I'm telling you through this, this is me speaking to you in a visible way, that all of the covenant promises, all of the covenant blessings, I died for you, I've given you new life, you are mine, all of that, that's what that's saying to us in a visible way, just not in a verbal way. Amen? That's what it's saying. And I think also, don't you think he could motivate you when you're meditating on the price he paid, what he did, the blood he shed, motivate you to make a deeper commitment to him, to repent of sin in your life and be willing to trust him more to make that your prayer? Don't you think that could happen? I think it could. I really do. So let me say in saying all that, the communion doesn't do any more than what the word does. And what I mean, there's no additional grace that you get. So we're not saying that from taking the bread and the cup because the word preached the word and the spirit. That's what Jesus said. That's how life comes, isn't it? But this, what this does is it enhances the reality of the gospel preached in a visible way. It's a visible sign that God himself has ordained ordained for the church. God himself is ordained. And look at it this way. I heard a man say this. It's like a wedding ring. Okay. So the wedding ring doesn't intensify the love of the man for the woman or vice versa. The wedding ring doesn't create love. Those elements don't create faith. 
They don't. But it's a tangible sign. That ring is what? It's a tangible sign that confirms that love. You can look at that. Ah, think of my wife. It doesn't create love. It doesn't make us any more married, does it? It's just a tangible sign that confirms his love. Something the eye can see. That's what that's all about. That's why we have communion. It's something we can see, something we can taste. The last thing I want to say is communion, though, it's not just a time, and we've kind of talked about things on an individual way, but this is a time in communion to consider the entire body, our church. So if you would quickly turn over to 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 and 17. And it says there, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion, the fellowship of the blood of Christ? And the bread which we break, is it not the communion or fellowship, koinonia, of the body of Christ? And he says why? Four, verse 17, four. Here's why it is that we being many are one bread or one loaf and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. So communion we don't do it this way, and we kind of lose the effect, but in some churches where they can, where they have the size, they will literally break off from one loaf to where everybody is sharing in the one loaf. I know Brother Hamilton's talked about that in the past, but it should speak to us of we do partake of the one loaf, who is Christ, Jesus. It also should say we look around, we're all indwelt by the same Spirit, baptized in the same Lord, forgiven through the same blood. In other words, we should know that everyone in here that's a believer were brothers and sisters, a family, a spiritual family is what he's saying. And so Paul, we know in 1 Corinthians 11, he had to get on the Corinthian church because they're having communion and they're not recognizing that. They're not living that way. They're just living for themselves. And he says, hey, you got some that are gorging yourselves and there's some here and they don't have anything to eat. That's not right. You're one body. You're dividing over these things. And he's saying, there's some of you here that are drunk, and there's some of you here who don't have anything to drink. He's like, that's not right. And so they'd forgotten the principles. The New Testament teaches us of bearing one another's burdens, contributing to the necessity of the saints, being of the same mind toward one another, esteeming others better than themselves. Looking not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. So we need to examine ourselves in light of that and in light of what it says in chapter 11. Verse 28, he says, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And for this cause, now this is serious, many are weak and sickly among you, and some sleep or die. He says, if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, Tarry one for another. In other words, make sure you're looking out for one another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that you come not together unto condemnation. And he says, the rest I will set in order when I come. So we just say, nobody's worthy. Don't partake because, well, I just feel, un nobody's worthy in that sense. So if you've got unrepentant sin, sin you're not willing to repent of, you're harboring grudges, hatred, animosity. If you're unwilling to repent of that, then I would suggest you don't participate. 
because of what he said there, the warning that's there. But otherwise, if you know you've repented and you're trying your best to walk with the Lord and trust him for his grace, there's no reason not to partake. I would say, I would encourage you to. And the other thing I want to say is, communion should not be a funeral gathering, should it? It really shouldn't. It should be a celebration because here's the thing. Guess who's not on the cross anymore? The Lord Jesus Christ is no longer suffering. We don't have to feel bad on the fact that our sins put him on the cross. I mean, we could be thankful for that, and that's what we ought to be. That's what communion is. Rejoice that his death and blood has given us new life and what? What's the other thing the blood tells us? Forgiveness and a new covenant. We can rejoice in that, can't we? Dedicate ourselves anew to serve him and trust him more. That's what we can do. And rejoice in the fellowship of the saints that we have here. Amen. We really can. And expect his presence among us. Because one day, you know what? We're going to be, talked about this earlier, at the ultimate banquet. Drinking wine. We ain't going to be getting drunk, but we'll be drinking wine with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it says. You know, he says, I'm not going to drink this cup again. They had four cups at that Passover meal. They believe, and I believe it was on cup number three is when he instituted the Passover and he left cup number four sitting there. You know why? It's waiting. It's waiting for the great banquet. Revelation 19, we'll close with this. He says, and I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude and as the voice of many waters, this is in the voice of mighty thundering saying hallelujah for the lord god omnipotent reigneth let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the lamb is come and his wife has made herself ready amen and i'm saying what i said earlier all this is is an appetizer of what's to come and let's trust god to make us ready amen for that big marriage supper of the lamb all right let's pray and Father, thank you, Lord, for the word once again that you've given us. And we're so thankful, Lord, for all you've done for us on the cross and where you've put us, the words you've allowed us to hear, the Holy Spirit that you've given us, Lord, and this fellowship that we're a part of. And we thank you for all of those things, Father. And I just ask that you'll put an appreciation in our heart, Lord, and that not just to be a ritual that when we partake of this bread and wine, Lord, that it points to all the things that we've talked about. And I thank you that you'll do that and that we'll see your presence manifest to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So if the men that would are going to pass out the elements would. Under your blood, your precious blood, under your cleansing, healing blood, Keep me, Savior, from day to day. Under your precious blood. Sing it again. Under your blood, your precious blood. Under your cleansing, healing blood, keep me, Savior, from day to day. Under your prayer.
right, Lord, we take this bread and we thank you for it, Father, and all that it represents, the broken body of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he took the punishment, Lord. He took our place and took the curse that we deserve so that we could be free and that we are no longer have to be under that curse. And we thank you for that, Lord. And as you said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And we receive it in Jesus' name. And Lord, we hold this cup and we thank you for what it represents, the blood that was shed on Calvary, Lord, and that grants us forgiveness of our sins, Lord, and, and a freed conscience. And that our past is never to be remembered again, Lord. All of those sins are put away as far as the east is from the west, and we're so thankful for that. But Lord, that it also represents this new covenant that you've made with us, this new covenant in your blood. And we just thank you, Lord, for all the blessings and privileges that come from it, Lord. And and we just acknowledge that. As Jesus said, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. And we drink it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, not peculiar people who should show forth the praises to Him. Who has called you out of darkness, out of darkness, out of darkness, into His marvelous light, into His marvelous light. Well, you are a chosen generation, a holy nation, a peculiar people Who should show forth the praises to Him Who has called you out of darkness Out of darkness, out of darkness Into His marvelous light Into His marvelous light And I'm so glad that Jesus set me free I'm so glad that Jesus set me free But Jesus set me free, didn't have me bound, but Jesus set me free, didn't have me bound, Jesus set me free, glory, hallelujah, Jesus set me free, and I'm on my way to heaven, shouting victory, I'm on my way to heaven, shouting victory, I'm on my way to heaven, shouting victory, singing glory, hallelujah, Jesus set me free, he is the king of kings, he is the Jesus, 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 oh, He is the King of kings, He is the Lord of lords, Jesus, 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 oh, He is the King, oh, there's something in my heart like a stream running free, makes me feel so happy, as happy as can be, when I Jesus and all is done for me. Something in my heart like a stream running free. Something in my heart like a stream running free. Makes me feel so happy, as happy as can be. When I think of Jesus and all is done for me. Something in my heart like a stream. I will sing, I will dance, I will rejoice in the Lord my God. I will sing. 
of his people Dancing is a joy to his heart So I will sing, I will dance to the Lord I will sing, oh I will sing I will rejoice in the Lord my God I will sing, I will dance I will rejoice in the Lord my God He opened up the gates of righteousness for me he opened up the gates of righteousness for me. Oh, I will go and praise his name for he ever is the same. He opened up the gates of righteousness. He opened up, he opened up the gates of righteousness for me. He opened up the gates of righteousness for me. I will go and praise his name for he ever is the same. He opened up the gates of righteousness. Oh, he is the king. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord. 